Hello, everybody, and welcome to Politics Today. Uh, in this episode of this podcast, I actually have some stuff from today that goes on because we have some breaking news in the political world, which uh, made me want to run over here to my microphone and get this recorded down and talk about it since it's uh, top of the news today. So um, real quickly to break it down, what's going to be on the show, um, we got three things. Uh, one is coronavirus. Got to talk about that uh, very quickly. And then I want to talk about uh, the executive orders that President Trump has signed um, in the negotiations with the uh, Democrats over the HEALS Act, which is the new round of relief for people who have been affected by the coronavirus. And then thirdly, the vice presidential nominee has been picked, um, and that is Kamala Harris for Joe Biden's campaign um, for president. And that's obviously causing some big news today. So um, let's get right back into it. So um, to begin, we want to talk about coronavirus. Obviously, coronavirus is a big issue in the United States still. Um, it's affecting many, many people. Uh, in fact, I am one of the people who was affected by it, or I should say infected by it. Um, I caught the coronavirus um, on a recent visit to South Florida and had to deal with that for the last couple of weeks. So um, one of the reasons why I didn't record a podcast in all this time was because of that. Um, I was recovering. Luckily for me, it was a pretty mild case, um, and it put me down for a while, about 10 days or so, maybe a little bit more, and then uh, I recovered from it from there. Now, the most interesting things, and some of the people I've been talking to lately wanted to hear the story, is... The way it came on, um, the first few days after symptoms showed up were the worst. Um, had a fever and was definitely very, very sick, um, like a bad flu, uh, not being able to get out of bed, things like that. Um, I never had a cough. Um, I never was really hard of breathing, but I did have a heavy chest. And basically, after that, it wore off about three days in, it just became a cold that you had to deal with. So it wasn't something horrible, um, but it was just lingering and it you know wouldn't go away. Now, while that cold was lingering around, I lost my sense of taste and smell. That's when I went and got tested, of course, and found that I was positive with this. And that took the longest to come back. That took about two weeks for taste and smell to come back. Um, it came back slowly, you start tasting a little bit, start smelling more, and then it finally kind of restored itself. So that was the freakiest part of the whole event. But for me, I was fortunate. It was a mild case, and I didn't infect anybody else. So that was a positive thing um, that came out of the coronavirus thing. Now, the other positive thing is the numbers. If you look at the numbers, especially in the state of Florida and really in the country, we've had drastic increases, obviously, of cases. And deaths have increased a lot as well. Now, all those are serious, but the good news is on that is that the percent positive in most of the states that had the big spike is going down. And the deaths are a lagging indicator, usually three to four weeks after when the actual um, death was recorded um, or the person got sick do we see a death? So it is a lagging indicator. So now that cases are going down, we can expect that probably in two to three weeks, you're going to see, start, start to see the death counts really start to, to really go down. They're already starting to go down. You'll see them go down further. Um, for example, Florida reported today, I think it was 276 deaths is what they recorded today, which is the most they've recorded in a single day. However, only 46 of those 276 have happened since August 1st. That's since the actual 
Um, over the last 10, 11 days, we've had 46 deaths. So it's a lagging indicator, but that's a good sign that things are going down and winding down. Now, speaking of coronavirus, we have issues in Washington, D.C., of course. And the issues that we're having in Washington, D.C. revolves around the president and Congress. So as many of you guys remember, it was mentioned in some of my previous podcasts, we had a bill that was passed by Congress back, or by I should say by the House of Representatives. It wasn't the whole Congress. But by the House of Representatives, there was a bill that was passed um, about a, a little over a month ago, maybe a month, month and a half ago. And that was a bill that was known as the Heroes Act. Now, the Heroes Act was a bill that was pushed forward by Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. It was $3 trillion of spending, which is the largest bill ever passed by the United States House of Representatives as far as spending goes, which is a really big bill. To put that in perspective, the United States... <clears throat> our budget um, and what we spend right now, we're deficit spending, but we're close to about $3 trillion a year in what we spend. This is $3 trillion in a single bill. So the entire budget of the United States in one bill, um, just extra funding for things. It was full of pet projects um, for Nancy Pelosi and other Democrat supporters to push through. It had um, some things that were really kind of ridiculous as far as how much money they were wanting to spend towards things. And it, really didn't uh, uh, get a response by the Republicans at all. Now, if you follow my Facebook pages, I have definitely beat up the Republicans pretty bad in this situation. And that is that the Republicans, uh, as they do, they did not have anything ready to even negotiate on. So the Democrats passed this huge $3 trillion bill. The Democrat supporters in the media push it as this um, panacea that's going to fix all the problems with coronavirus. And, of course, it won't. You can't spend your way out of solving a virus. It doesn't work that way. Um, and so they were were praised by the media for this big $3 trillion bill. And the Republicans really did nothing. They just sat back saying this bill's crazy. It's too expensive. It's just it's nonsense. And they're not wrong. It is nonsense. I mean, the bill is absolute nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't actually do anything to solve anyone's problems. Um, but where I fault the Republicans is that they should have known that they were going to get into a protracted um, argument over funding uh, and another wave of funding to come in as the coronavirus kept going. Now, I, th I know a lot of them probably were hoping that the numbers were going to go down, the summer was going to hit, and it wouldn't be a need for all this extra funding because there's still money that wasn't spent in the first CARES Act, you still had states um, with money that they you know haven't used. You had some issues going on with unemployment in some other places, but they were hoping that that people would get back to work, the economy would kick back up, the virus would go you know recede, and there would be this huge need for funding and a massive funding bill, and they would be able to kind of get through it, maybe perhaps unscathed. Um, that was never a realistic expectation. Back in July, even in June. There was it was well known that the twelve hundred dollars that was given out by the government was not enough. Um, the six hundred dollars a week has helped a lot of people. Although I will say I have some close info on stuff going on in Nevada, where is a state that hasn't even paid 
uh, people for unemployment since this whole entire pandemic began, um, basically citing that people are being fraudulent and things like that. Um, there's a court case going on right now in Nevada over that where they're suing um, because they haven't paid any pandemic assistance. And in fact, their own system blocked people from getting federal pandemic assistance. And this is something that's been going on now for, I think it's 22 weeks in Nevada. So there's some serious problems in some Democrat-run states where they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, there's only one reason why it's happening, and it's not because they can't pay out unemployment benefits. These states can. Other states have used the same systems they have, have paid out these unemployment benefits and these these pandemic uh, benefits, but yet Democrat-run states like Nevada haven't. And I think it's political. It has to do with a state that has Democrat-run governor and legislation, and they believe this was going to play to their benefit. Um, I don't know why. You'd think a, uh, you'd think a Democrat governor would want to be a hero and help their people, but it doesn't seem to be the going rate. But I digress. So back to the negotiations in Congress. You have a bill, $3 trillion, it's worthless. Everyone knows it's worthless, um, and that's kind of been ignored. You have Republicans who haven't done anything. They haven't come up with their own bill. Um, to present and actually argue with. And so then we come down to the last about two and a half weeks or so of negotiations. This is when the Republicans finally decide that they want to pass some legislation to address um, what is going on with a second round of funding, which really more like a fourth round of funding, and another round of $1,200 checks, unemployment extension, all those things. They call it the HEALS Act. It is about a trillion dollars worth of spending. So this is no small bill. I mean, to put this in perspective, back when the financial crash, the housing crisis happened, the credit crunch that happened in 2008, 2009, you had bills being passed by the, the Bush administration and the incoming Obama administration where it was about 800 and something billion dollars. And that was the stimulus bill that was being passed in the bailout. Under Bush, there was the $800 billion TARP bailout. And then there was a stimulus by Obama for another 800 some odd billion dollars. Those are all huge bills. I mean, at the time those are passed, people were like, this is crazy. They add to our national debt under the Obama administration. Our national debt doubles. He spends more money as president than any other president ever before him combined. And part of it was all of these bailout bills. We're talking about a Republican bill now that's a trillion dollars. On top of about $3 trillion that's already been spent over the, the course of this pandemic. So we're talking serious money here. Something that 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, would have been insane to even talk about spending this much money. And yet you still have a Democrat bill that's $3 trillion, $2 trillion more than that. Um, so they've come down to negotiate and talk about this and discuss it. And if you've been following the news, you know these discussions have not materialized in anything at all. And that's planned. The Democrats do not want to negotiate. They come to the table with their their, their $3 trillion bill, and they're not backing off of it. The, the most recent thing, Nancy Pelosi came out and said she'd go down to $2 trillion instead of 3 and wants the Republicans to come up another trillion dollars in spending to meet her. So that's where these basically this negotiation ended. The Republicans did want a few things that Democrats, of course, didn't support. They wanted to lower the amount of money that was being funded in unemployment down to about seventy percent of your income. I personally thought that was um, not the not a good hill to die on. It's just not worth it. 
politically, it's a bad idea. It doesn't play well politically to your constituents who are unemployed and you're relying on this money. So you don't want to hurt them. Two, it's too complicated to switch things to 70% and expect the states now all of a sudden to adjust and be able to handle this new 70% number and have to figure out what your income would be. It just wasn't, in my opinion, a practical thing. So I do agree with the Democrats there. It's a rare thing for me, but I did agree with them that just keep it at $600, keep you studying. And I understand the downside. The downside is you, you know, people might not go back to work because they're making more money on unemployment. But to me, that was a small price to pay in order for getting some kind of legislation done that's going to help the American people. In the end, this is about helping the American people, getting people back on their feet because the government shut them down. Remember, this is not money that's just being given out in social programs or something like that. This is money that would have been in the economy had the government not shut people down and stopped them from doing business because of the coronavirus. So we have to remember that. The government created this as a response to coronavirus. Therefore, the government's responsible to help people out of it. That's a key difference between What's going on with coronavirus funding and these, these these bailout bills and social programs or something along a welfare program or entitlement spending or something like that? There's two different things. You know, that's something where the government just takes is reallocating tax money to a different thing, redistributing the wealth. Uh, while this is government action cause something, government needs to then fix that something. So. There's a, there's a distinct difference there. But we also have to be fiscally conscious about what we're spending on this because we, in order to keep the economy going, you got to really be bare necessities. So I do understand where Republicans are coming from with their trying to limit the amount of these bailouts because they have to be coronavirus necessity. That that has to be the bare minimum. You can't, you can't be spending extra money on pet projects or bailouts for big corporations or anything like that. That money's been given out. This is money directed towards the people to get them back in business, and that's where the focus should be. Now, unfortunately, the political parties can't decide. Nancy Pelosi won't budge off of her position, neither will Chuck Schumer. They give this trillion-dollar thing where they'll come down to $2 trillion. Honestly, that's a joke. It's, it's not a serious negotiating tactic. It's something to say to the media that, hey, we're trying without actually having to do anything that's material or actually have to negotiate. You know, it's like uh, creating a fantasy land where you got a ma- mountain made of candy, right? And you're going to climb this candy mountain, and on your way up the mountain, you know, all of a sudden there's there's no candy, or you're going to say, oh, well, you know, we're going to replace some of the candy with rocks. The reality is the candy mountain doesn't exist. It's fake. So it doesn't matter what you replace it with, it's not going to exist. So that's the situation we have with the Democrat bill. The $3 trillion, it's fake. It's not real. I mean, it's never practical to begin with. So to come off of a made-up imaginary thing and say we're going to come off a trillion dollars on this, it's it just makes no sense. It's not a serious um, negotiating tactic. It's not a serious – they're not looking for a serious resolution. Um, and they know it doesn't play well. If they can diddle-daddle and not pass something but make it look like the Republicans aren't negotiating – they think that will play well in the elections that they have. And they still have primaries going on. Primaries are still happening around states. So the Democrats have a lot to lose in these primary fights that they're fighting. And they're hoping it's going to set them up for November. There's a reason why these things happen on the timeline that they happen. And that they don't want a result 
before the end of the election. He wanted to try to use this against the president as a way to say, look, the president's not doing anything. He's not helping the American people. They then can get votes. Uh, This is very strategic what the Democrats are doing. So the Republicans, unfortunately, played right into it. They had no plan of their own. They're not doing a very good job negotiating at all. And they even have falling out within their own party, yelling at each other. Trump, in my opinion, did a masterful move. He's been kind of alluding to this move for the last few weeks um, without actually doing it. And he said he would write executive orders if he had to to bring relief to the American people. Um, now, he's limited in what he can actually do because it's the federal government. And he can only effectu- uh, effectuate the federal government. So these executive orders are limited. But he basically has neutralized the Democrats in their position of arguing about this you know, coming down from the candy mountain of $3 trillion into reality, right? He's neutralized them. He's gone around them. He's promising $400 a week uh, additional benefit. Now, I have to note this. The Republicans did offer an extension of $600 a week unemployment for a um, certain amount of time while the negotiations continued so that they could get some kind of uh, some alleviation for, for people out there, right? But the Democrats refused. They said they didn't want to do things piecemeal. They wanted one big comprehensive bill. So that's how another way you could tell they're not serious. Right? If they were serious, there wouldn't be a need for a comprehensive bill. You'd get well, you take what you get, right? If you could get an extension, cool, let's get the extension. It doesn't hurt anybody. It gets a, a, a problem solved. And then you go back to the negotiating table, you still work, but at least the American people are being taken care of, the ones who are unemployed. But for some reason, that wasn't good enough for Nancy Pelosi. She wants all or nothing. An all or nothing approach is not going to work in this situation. Um, and so the Republican, uh, the president went around him. He went around him, $400 a week. It's 300 from the federal government. It's going to be $100 from each of the states um, using some of the money that they've already gotten from the CARES Act the first time around they haven't spent. And so the idea behind it is that these states can handle this, and it's not intended to be a long-term solution. It's intended to be a stopgap measure. He also has some relief with um, federal student loan debt, and I'm going to pay back the loans for a while, some forbearance there to help people, along with some other things, uh, moratorium on evictions and things like that. There's been questions about the constitutionality of this and whether the president can actually do this or not, and the president's basically daring the Democrats to stop him. Now, if you're on to argue constitutionally, if the president can really do all this stuff, it's going to be tough. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a valid constitutional argument that can be made to this. But are Democrats really going to sue the president and stop him from giving relief to the American people? Is that a really practical thing that you could see them doing? I mean, I don't see that at all. I see them going back to the negotiating table now and negotiating. And now they're in a position where they have to negotiate with Republicans because they've been bypassed. Their argument has been bypassed around them. And the, they have a president who actually wants to get things done and doesn't want to mess around with the stupid political wrangling that is going on right now on Capitol Hill. So I think it was a masterful move by the president. If you want to learn more about the historical arguments that Democrats have used in negotiations, there's a great podcast out there by Newt Gingrich um, called Newt's World. And he has a recent episode where he talks about the negotiations over the balanced budget and the things in the Republican Revolution in the 1990s and how they negotiated um, with the Democrats on that and how they got things accomplished. It's really, really enlightening to listen to that stuff and, and learn the history behind 
that the Democrats do this all the time. This is nothing new. Um, and it's all politically motivated in the end. So very, very good on that. But I think kudos to the president. The president did the right thing. Um, he may face backlash for the constitutionality of this, but I think um, he did what needed to be done. And he also masterfully is taking a, thing, a negotiating thing away from the Democrats and putting it in the pocket of the Republicans. So it's a gift to the Republicans in negotiations. If they can execute it correctly, they can get a lot of what they want done now and be able to reduce the price tag, um, hopefully by $2 trillion from what the Democrats originally wanted. So that's what I wanted to get out about the negotiations and the um, executive orders because a lot of people had many questions about that. Now on to the news of the day. And the news of the day, as most of you have probably heard, Kamala Harris is the pick for vice president for Joe Biden's campaign. And this is big news. It's history in the making. This is the first African-American woman to be picked as a vice presidential candidate on a major ticket. She's not the first African-American to ever be picked and nominated for vice president, but it is the first one to be on a major ticket. So, so far, Democrat Party has had two big major historical things happen. Um, well, three, actually. First African-American president, of course. Um, they have the first woman ever to run on a major ticket with Hillary Clinton. And now they have the first woman, um, an African-American woman, um, to run uh, as a vice president on a, na- on a major national ticket. So those are big historical things. I, I don't want to step into this lightly and say that that's not important. Uh, it, those are important things. Um, it's important to know the history and have these historical things happen. Like, you know, kudos to the Democrat Party for, for getting people nominated and, and for breaking these historical barriers that have once existed. It's not like Republicans haven't tried. They've had a woman vice president nominee before. We've had women run in the Republican Party to run for president um, and and haven't gotten through the primaries. So, And we've had African-Americans who ran on the um, Republican uh, ticket for president. So, uh, you know, these things have happened in both parties, but the Democrats give kudos where kudos is due. They're the ones who've broken those historical barriers with their candidates. So now we get to Kamala Harris. I have lots of problems with this pick. I'm no fan of Kamala Harris. I'm no fan of Joe Biden either. Um, But this Kamala Harris pick really opened my eyes to some things about where this campaign is going. So this is my motivation really to come to the microphone and get this down for all you guys to hear. So why pick Kamala Harris? That's a good question. Obviously, Joe Biden was going back and forth trying to pick a candidate. Um, he pigeonholed himself in at the very beginning of his campaign. I believe he gave in to pressures um, from outside of the political party and maybe within the more extreme left of the political party where he was steered into picking a woman um, as a vice president candidate. Uh, in fact, he came out and said he would pick a African-American woman Really, with no other basis, he pigeonholed himself into that position right in the very beginning and was forced to have to sort through who was available um, as a viable candidate for the vice president. So automatically, he took out a huge portion of people who could be viable vice president candidates because he caved in to an extremist view that you're not progressive or you're not fighting for social justice if you're not pushing these boundaries uh, the Democrat Party has historically broken. 
Right? This has become a theme in the Democrat Party. Break the boundaries, break down these barriers. That's what we're all about. And even if it's not sincere, it's just what they're all about. Even if they have to run a flawed candidate that's not good or not best for the country, they're going to do it because of other attributes that person has. It's kind of a myopic look at their whole political party. But anyways, they picked Kamala Harris. Now, there was other candidates there. Susan Rice was in the running. Karen Bass was in the running. Both of them had lots of baggage, and I think they weren't polling well internally in the Biden camp. I also don't really think Biden's in full of control of who he's picking to be his vice president. I think there are some serious questions about his fitness for office and whether he's really in control of what's happening behind the scenes or if he's relying a lot on advisors. I mean, he got pigeonholed in the beginning because he relied on information from outside and not from what he really believed. Um, Not to say he didn't believe an African-American woman would be a good vice president. I think there's lots of good African-American women out there that would be great vice presidential candidates and presidential candidates. Um, None of the ones he was looking at, though. They weren't enough, far enough left, far enough extreme um, to be involved in his political campaign, not in 2020. Um, they, They wouldn't make the cut, so to speak. So Susan Rice, a lot of baggage. Karen Bass, a lot of baggage. Karen Bass's big problem is she's a communist sympathizer. Uh, she's a Castro supporter, um, and she's tried to go back and cover that up and had a very hard time doing it. And so without that much name recognition and having that much baggage, she was almost immediately, I think, eliminated. I think they floated her name um, out there for a while, but she wasn't really going to be a serious contender. Susan Rice, I think, very much was a serious contender. And I think Susan Rice is probably Biden's real pick in his head of who he wanted. And that's because he knows Susan Rice really well. They worked both in the Obama administration. And she was a U.N. ambassador. Um, and she worked within the State Department. So she and him do get along. They do know each other. And she does have a lot of international and foreign policy experience, which would be good to bring into his campaign. But she had a major problem. She was the figurehead and the mouthpiece for the Benghazi debacle. When Benghazi it happened in Libya and four Americans were killed, including a U.S. ambassador, she went on television and lied on every Sunday program saying it was because of a video, which would got proven false almost immediately after that. Now, she's not the only person ever to do that. Hillary Clinton lied about it, too. Um, but she lied about it. She was low-level enough that she could be sacrificed to the media Um, for that, and I think if she had been picked as vice president, that would have really come back to haunt her Um, because people would have been, "Eh, you know, you have all this foreign policy experience, but then you've gone out and lied. Um, You've been caught lying. You've never really came out and apologized for that, and now you want to be vice president and potentially president. Now, traditionally, the vice presidential pick is not that big of a deal. When Trump was running, he picked Mike Pence. Um, Mike Pence was a good pick. He had a lot of political experience, had been a governor. Um, so he kind of balanced the ticket as far as Trump went. Trump with no political experience brought on Mike Pence who knew what he was doing. So good pick. It helped balance the ticket for Trump. Um, but I think people were more focused on Trump that entire time than they were ever focused on, uh, if, you know, Mike Pence would be president or not. Same thing with Hillary Clinton. When Hillary Clinton picked, uh, Tim Kaine, I don't think anyone actually was considering that Tim Kaine would be president. Uh, they just figured he'd be vice president, he'd do the vice presidential role. However, Biden is getting up there in age. And 
with Biden being up there in age and already showing issues about his cognitive abilities, um, even though some of those are debatable, but I think it's pretty clear that he's got some problems. He's not the same old Biden that he was. Um, the VP pick becomes a big deal because you need to pick someone who may have to potentially jump in and be president sooner rather than later. And you already have Biden saying that he probably won't serve a second term or even run for a second term, that he's going to be this placeholder president. And so whoever's his vice president is really going to be poised, if not taking over for him, they're going to take over right after him or run for president right after him. They want to get that political experience. Now, this is full of issues with that kind of scenario. Uh, Deep down, I think uh, Michelle Obama was also probably in the running but it was kept kind of quiet, and I don't think Michelle Obama actually wanted to be vice president. I think she wants to run in 2024, and she thinks that being vice president would probably hurt her more more than it would help her. She doesn't need the name recognition. Everyone knows who she is. She doesn't need to go around and say, oh, I've served as vice president. I served in the White House. She was first lady in the White House, so she has that going for her. So I don't think she was going to do it. It would, it would give her too much. It, she had more to lose than to gain by being vice president. So I think that's what cut her out, even though I'm sure Joe Biden would have wanted her. Uh, She would definitely have been the best choice as far as a political decision in winning. Now, Kamala Harris, in my opinion, is the worst choice. She's about as bad as you get. And there's a few reasons for this. Um, Kamala Harris, one, has a lot of baggage on her own. Um, Kamala Harris was a attorney general in California, and she has a record as a prosecutor that is very anti-minority. She was anti-police. She was against body cams. She was uh, against the legalization or de- even decriminalization of marijuana, and there's a whole interview with her where she laughs about whether she used it or not while putting people away for minor marijuana offenses um, for many, many years. And she was also... For tougher sentencing for felons, she was against re- reducing certain uh, felonies and misdemeanors down to lesser offenses, so they wouldn't people wouldn't serve jail time for them. Uh, she even had uh, there was a story of a person on death row that wanted some DNA uh, a DNA test to be done, an advanced DNA test to be done to try to prove that they were innocent. Um, and she's denied that over and over and over again because she wants to keep that prosecution. Because she has been a prosecutor that thrived off putting people away and advancing through that. Many of the people that were negatively affected by that are black and brown people. These are people of minority communities that she worked hand-in-hand to put in prison. So that is pretty big baggage. And the other part of it is she is an openly anti-Joe Biden. During the campaign and during the primaries, she basically called Biden a racist over his position on busing. Um, and she's probably not that far off on that. Um, but she also pushed him on a lot of different issues. Um, so not only calling him racist, but calling him other things. I mean, even questioning his fitness for office. So she has not been a friend of Joe Biden um, at all in this scenario. However, now all of a sudden she's the VP pick. And of course now it's going to be kumbaya and everything's fine. That was just political. And now none of that matters. But in the world of 2020 that we live in, this is an interesting pick and a dangerous pick that Joe Biden did. Because if you are a black lives matter supporter, 
or if you are a quote-unquote social justice warrior and you're out there fighting for Black Lives Matter or fighting for the Me Too movement, um, which is another thing. I mean, she has said she believes the accusers of Joe Biden that he uh, had committed sexual assault. So, and she has a record of really being outspoken and almost a figurehead for the Me Too movement when the Kavanaugh hearings were going on. She grandstanded a lot in that hearing um, with with Brett Kavanaugh for Supreme Court. And she has carried that as a banner with her, but now she is openly going to be vice presidential candidate supporting a person she's accused of those very same things. So hypocrite is to say the least. But those are her viewpoints. And if you're one of those people who is a social justice um, proponent, a Black Lives Matter supporter, a Me Too, hashtag Me Too supporter, that you've been barking online all this time and jumping down people's throats about all these different social justice issues that you care about, how could you possibly support Kamala Harris or Joe Biden? It's an impossibility. These people stand against every single thing you say you stand for. So this is where push comes to shove in the political world. Are you willing to sacrifice, if you're a person on the left, are you willing to sacrifice all those things that you have come out and spoke over and over and over in support of simply because you want that political party to win the election? You want the Democrats to win? You hate Trump that much? That you're willing to completely take all your beliefs, throw them down the toilet because they're completely against any of these people these people support the opposite of what you support i mean other than kamala harris being a black woman there is no other thing that she would align herself with with black lives matter and don't worry the media will not talk about her prosecutorial record that won't be mentioned very much they will cover up any kind of arguments that she's had back and forth with joe biden um i already watched sc cup from cnn and she already um came out throwing that stuff to the side, that, oh, that was just politics and none of that really mattered and they made up for it and and they're, they're the people to go with because Trump's so bad, we need to vote for them. Now, she's a political animal and she's not one of these big social justice warriors. So the, for those people who are very passionate about this issue, and many of them are my close friends, who are very passionate about this issue, are you willing to sacrifice all those things you are passionate about and throw them away simply because you hate Trump? And simply because you want a Democrat to win. Are you willing to do that? Because if you're willing to do that, then why would you ever have posted all that stuff in the first place? People are out there rioting, protesting, doing all sorts of things. Some people are getting hurt standing up for what they believe in. A lot of these protesters, they really believe in this cause. And I don't fault them for it. We have a First Amendment right in this country. You have the right to freedom of assembly and freedom to protest and freedom to petition your government for for redress of your grievances and for changes, and I support that. Don't support rioting. I do support you if you want to go out there and you want to protest for something, but how can you go and protest for something and then go over to the voting booth and vote right against it, making everything you just protested for worthless, wasting all that time? The reality is you're being played. You're being played as a pawn in a political game. That is the reality. And now let me show you why the real reason why Kamala Harris was picked. Now, of course, this is an opinion, but it's an educated opinion. 
Kamala Harris was picked for one reason. Well, two reasons. One, she's an African-American woman. And since he needed an African-American woman, that's Joe Biden needed one because he had already pigeonholed himself in that situation. And if he walked away from that, it would have been a, that would have been a, you know, a nuclear bomb to his campaign. It would have been over had he walked away from that. So that was reality. He needed a African-American woman. So Kamala Harris fit the bill when it comes to that. But this other reason why he picks Kamala Harris and not someone else is because she was an attorney general and she was a prosecutor and she was tough on crime. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, why would that matter? Isn't that against everything? Didn't you just say, he's, you know, if you want to reform the justice system and you want to help uh, people like minorities, black and brown people who are, uh, you know, really arguably, and I would say beyond arguably, proven fact that more of them are locked up um, for petty crimes than any other population. Um, and a lot of it, there's a lot of factors for that, but it's a reality, right? So all those social justice reforms that we want and people support, why would you walk away from all that stuff, you know? And why would you say he, he put this person who just completely blows that argument away? It's law and order. That is why. And I'll tell you, the reality is, you won't hear this in the media. The news media, the entertainment, air quotes media, is not going to tell you this stuff. Because they ignore it. They cover it up as much as they can. They've been running on a narrative that they've been sticking to for a long time. And it's been working for them. But the reason why they're not going to tell you any of this stuff is because the reality is Donald Trump is on to something. Donald Trump is correct. He's right. The American people do not like to see American cities on fire. They do not like to see people getting hurt and killed in the streets. They do not like to see police being harmed. They do not like to see people throwing things at federal officers and trying to burn down police stations and burn down courthouses. People do not want to see that. The American people, as a majority, do not approve of any of that behavior. Donald Trump tapped into this when he gave that speech about being law and order, right? He gave that speech in front of Mount Rushmore where he is a law and order president. It kind of looked like, you know, kind of repeated some of the Nixon things from 1968, right? He's going to be law and order and he's going to, he doesn't believe in this stuff. He's going to maintain law and order and law and order is what it's all about. Well, I bet you his internal polling has shown that that's a winner. It's a winner in suburban areas. It's a winner outside of these major cities. Um, it's probably even a winner inside these major cities if you actually interviewed people who live in them, people who live in Chicago have to deal with us shootings every weekend and now the looting and the rioting. You interview the average person, they don't agree with this stuff. They want to see law and order restored. President Trump has been very vocal and outgoing that that's what he believes in, right? That's what he's running on. And it's working. The internal polling is showing that it's working. People like that. When they're polled outside of this, they'll say all sorts of things. You know, when they're polled and they're asked about questions about, do they like Donald Trump? Do they like Biden? Right? A lot of people won't come out and say they like Donald Trump, right? It's a very abrasive guy. It's very hard to come out and support him openly for some people, um, especially people who are middle of the road or even Democrat, right? They're never going to say they support the president, but they do support law and order. And if they see the reality is that this president can restore law and order, 
And they know in their heads that when this election's over, all this stuff is going to go by the wayside because this is all opportunistic being used by Democrats and used by the media to push their agenda. And it's going to go by the wayside after the election. They know that. Donald Trump's winning in that regard. Now, you don't see it. If you listen to the news media, it's, oh, Biden's winning by a landslide, and Biden's polling so good, and Biden's winning, Biden's winning. Trump is not winning. Everyone hates Trump. It's not true. The reality is Trump has a huge enthusiastic base who really, really supports him. And he's got a lot of people who are going to be voting with their safety in mind when it comes, especially people in some of these disaffected cities. And the reality is Biden can't compete with that. Biden can't come out and be the social justice warrior. He's too long of a career. He has the 1994 crime bill that he sponsored. He's got a lot of issues that are going to come up and have come up and plagued him on this. So he needed somebody. And he needed someone who is African-American, who is woman, to fit that bill. And he needed someone that to play a dual campaign. He's going to, the Democrats are going to play up the minority status of their VP candidate and that she's a woman. And they're going to try to win over the social justice warriors by not mentioning any of the things that she's actually been in support of and what her record actually shows. I mean, because she's come out and said, oh, I don't agree with that stuff anymore. I changed my mind. Different opinions now, blah, blah, blah. And it's true. Some people change their opinions over time. But the reality is it's politically convenient for her to change her opinions. But her record shows something completely opposite. When she was in power and she was in a position, she used it against the very people that she's now saying that she wants to help. They're not going to talk about that. They're going to try to drive this one leg of their campaign saying that she's this progressive candidate, right? The progressive prosecutor. And she did all these good things. They're not going to talk about any of the bad things. And she's an African-American woman. You need to support her. She could be president. You know, she could be the first African-American woman president, right? That's what they're going to be pushing. On the other side, in suburban world, you're going to have Biden pushing that, hey, I had this prosecutor on my team who was tough on crime, who was fair and reasonable in her decisions and went after criminals and made sure that she is law and order, right? She can restore law and order because she was attorney general and she knows how to do it. And they're going to play that up because internal polling showing is that is the winner. That is the winning argument. And they can't outshine Trump by himself because Trump's way too bombastic. He's way too out there. He's way too uh, ingrained with this law and order thing. They can't possibly just go fight him on law and order. Biden knows politically it's a loser. If he goes up against Trump and I'm going to be the law and order guy, Trump could just point to every Democrat-controlled city that's on fire and say, you're not the law and order guy. You know, it's that easy. But it's not as easy to take the African-American woman vice president and put her in the same scenario. Because you have to be very cautious, especially if you're Trump, on what you're going to say. Because Trump has a bad habit of saying stupid things. So he needs to be very cautious about how he politically handles this situation. And in the end, the law and order is what's going to win out. It's not going to be the progressive socialist causes. It's not going to be defund the police or abolish the police. It's not going to be... Any other, you know, reducing all these things or legalizing this or changing the justice system, that's all going to get overshadowed when November actually comes around. 
It's got to be law and order. And do you feel safe with these people in office or do you not feel safe? For Democrats who are on the fence, they're going to go with Kamala Harris because she's the prosecutor. She's been tough on crime. And they're going to overlook her horrendous record on minority rights and treating people equally. They're going to completely ignore that while supporting her law and order side of it. And that is why she was picked for the vice president candidate. Now, what does that mean in the end? Is it going to be a winning strategy or is it going to be a losing strategy? I personally think people hopefully will see through it for what it is. I would think if you're an African-American in this country, you need to be very aware that you're being played by a political party that has played you for years. And every election comes around and begs for your vote and does something that's going to, oh, hey, look, we're going to get your vote by doing this. They give you a little dog and pony show. And that's really what this is. Because if they were really serious about what they say and what they, what they say they believe and what they want to see done, their progressive strategy, they would never have put a woman like Kamala Harris in the vice presidential pick, ever. They would have picked someone far more progressive, um, like Stacey Abrams, for example, or someone like that. They would never went after Kamala Harris. Law and order what is what this election is going to come down to and restoring law and order in this country. And that is what Kamala Harris is going to actually bring to the table. So wake up, America. Look at what's going on. That's the real story. All right. Thank you for listening. Of course, um, you can hit me up on Facebook. Uh, it's James Ryan O'Hara. Um, Politics Today, J-R-O, uh, is at Gmail is the email address. Feel free to email me with anything that you would, of course, like. And, of course, like this, share it, um, let everyone know. I try to do these as much as I possibly can, but because of coronavirus, I was a little delayed in this one. But um, I'm feeling better now, so hopefully there will be a lot more coming. And I appreciate everybody listening, and you all have a wonderful day.